Greetings and salutations. This is Kevin DeYoung, and we have the band back together today. Colin Hansen and Boom Goes the Dynamite. Justin Taylor is here, and we'll hear from them in just a moment. Glad to have you with us here on Life and Books and Everything. As is typical, we are glad to be sponsored by Crossway. Grateful for their ministry and their books and wanted to mention to you today, Short Studies in Biblical Theology. This is a series Dane Ortland and Miles Van Pelt have edited. There are lots of volumes. This is a really good, it, it is what it says, Short Studies in Biblical Theology. They also have one in Systematic Theology. We may mention that at a future episode, but this one is in Biblical Theology. So you have Tom Schreiner on Covenant and God's Purpose for the World. Hmm, I wonder, I'm, I'm, do I agree with everything in that book, Justin, about Covenant? If there's anyone I would want to disagree with, or would want to disagree with me, it would be Tom Schreiner, because he's so thoughtful and so ironic. Okay, so you still read that book. Uh, lots of others. Guy Prentice Waters, there's a good the Lord's Supper is a sign and means of the New Covenant. G.K. Beale, Redemptive Reversals, new book by Frank Thielman, The New Creation Storyline of Scripture. There, There's more than a dozen of them, so they're all worth reading. So check out Short Studies in Biblical Theology. Thank you, Crossway. Colin and Justin, good to have you here. Uh, just catch up a little bit, I'm sure. Many listeners are eager to hear what you did for your Christmas vacation. Colin, anything noteworthy over the last month or so? Did you go anywhere? Did you get sick? Did you eat anything, watch anything? What happened? I gained way too much weight, and I'm, I'm employing my New Year's resolutions, and I did. Uh, I did watch some things. Some that I'm more proud of than others. I read a lot, uh, which was fun, which is appropriate for this broadcast and this podcast. But um, I did uh, one thing. I did that that was very enjoyable, and maybe worth talking about would be watching Ted Lasso on Apple TV. Now, I cannot. I cannot recommend this show in good conscience because it's it's got very bad language and a lot of sexuality in it not like explicit just sexual talk in it but there's a reason it's been very provocative for people because it's so different from what you normally mm. see on tv so that's probably the one thing most interesting that i felt like man i want to talk to people about watching this is it funny this is the the american coach who's coaching english football yeah, Jason Sudeikis. So he started out, you remember when the Premier League broadcast came to NBC? Right, this was like a little the, commercial bit. There were a couple different commercial bits pretending like an American football coach was coaching English football. And he had a whole bit as this guy named Ted Lasso, and he had an assistant coach called The Beard. And somehow they developed it into an, an entire series, uh, at least for one season, and I think they'll be renewing it. But... I love Jason Sudeikis. I, I I think he's I think he's great. I think he's funny. It helps that he's from Kansas City, and so we love the same sports teams, um, and that comes up a lot. Kansas City in the series, but just overall, I did find it to be incredibly funny, but then also strangely endearing and actually poignant, at a number of different occasions, and a very good contrast and distraction 
from the news, uh, which I needed over Christmas last month. We welcome that. Uh, I'll get to Justin, but that 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 prompts something in me. If I can put on my um, my infamous glowering scowl <laughs> towards all of those people who were watching Game of Thrones, which Babylon B did something about that after I wrote a couple of blog articles, I I will go on. I will hear of these things. Now I didn't. I've heard of that one. Ted Lasso, and um, I didn't look at it in depth, but I'll hear of things. This is trending on Netflix, or this is on Prime, or what? And and they sound interesting, especially ones that are historically situated. Maybe my wife would watch, or if they're British in some way. And invariably, I go, and if you go to IMDb, International Movie Database, they they have I find the most uh, detailed parental advisory. I think it's just what people have typed. I mean, it'll give you how many words they time they said this word and sexuality. So I will go for these series that I find all sorts of people raving about. And I, I can't even read through the parental advisory content without feeling some sense of shame. Now I didn't do, I'm not, I'm not shaming you for Ted Lasso because I, I didn't see that one. But for hey, many, I knew when I brought this up, I knew this is where the conversation was okay, going to go. But for and, many I'm not, others, and I'm not defending myself on this. I just one thing that's interesting with this, and I want you to finish that point. One thing that's interesting about Ted Lasso is that the, his character shines precisely against the backdrop of the other attitudes and language and speech of the other characters. And so it's just a it's a strange dynamic because you can't tell is this show the most wholesome thing I've right. watched in years, or is it the opposite? You, you It is a, confi- not the opposite, because it's not nearly as vile as a lot of other things out there. And like I said, it's not graphic. So that's a very big difference on it. But I, I think with your friendship over the years, Kevin, and becoming a parent, I've become more sensitive in good ways. And my conscience has been restored a little bit from where it had been seared, I think, in some of my younger well, even years. Even the, uh, the Queen's Gambit, right? That the, the chess one, people, I mean, Bridgerton, that thing looked like soap opera trash from the get-go. But any of these sort of things, I look and it's just mind-boggling to me that, I mean, and I'll do this sometimes for my kids. I'll say, okay, I want you to read this. Read this to me and tell me if this sounds like something now we're we 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 my kids were watching some avenger movies earlier so we people could draw the lines a lot better and closer on some things than we do but i I asked the question to friends not infrequently do you have anything good because i'd be happy to watch something while i'm you know running on the treadmill or riding my bike or want an hour of downtime and it's just very hard to find something Justin, what did you do, and can you redeem the time better than Colin? <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you what I did, and then I'll tell you a solution to make both of you guys happy on the movie. Did Angel? <clears throat> That's it. So I'll get there, but okay. uh, yeah, it was not a an easy break for us. Um, like Thanksgiving, we did not meet as a family, which was weird. Like living now locally with family. Um, 
Some other family members made that decision. We didn't end up getting together. And by the time Christmas rolled around, I think having foregone uh, family gatherings for Thanksgiving with the the vaccine in sight, uh, my wife at one point said, do you think we should, we should be meeting for Christmas? And we all decided to meet. And long story short, uh, over probably two-thirds of the people who gathered got COVID, including uh, myself and my wife and a couple of our kids. So uh, thankfully, the the symptoms weren't unmanageable, and we uh, survived it, which is not a, a throwaway line because uh, no people who haven't and parents who haven't. Um, so we're thankful to be on the other side of it. But one unfortunate thing that I think of all the stuff that I've read on COVID that I didn't truly get is that unless you're completely self-isolated from other family members, the people who tested negative, their quarantine time starts only after your quarantine time ends and you're no longer contagious. So functionally, three of our kids didn't get COVID, but right. had to quarantine essentially for a full month, which is uh, a long time to quarantine, especially after uh, nine or 10 months of, of doing this. So uh, that, that was... Uh, you know, mildly frustrating, but we got through it. Uh, this weekend, we discovered that our uh, 12-year-old dog has lymphoma. So that was not something we were expecting, but talking about, do you do chemo? Uh, what, what do you do there? So uh, we're going to put him on something that will probably, Lord willing, give him another month to live. But uh, that's a sad thing, especially when you have kids and, uh, you know, I think for people who don't own pets and pets like dogs that you can truly grow attached to uh, for many years, uh, it, it feels a little bit abstract of why would losing a pet be that that difficult, but throw kids into the mix and uh, it ends up being a large part of your life. So that's a, a little sadness hanging over the Taylor household right now. But um, yeah, so... Go ahead, Kevin. No, did you watch anything? Did you do anything uh, noteworthy? Sorry, you were sick. Glad you're better. Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, I th if you're looking for a good movie that's well acted, well shot, uh, News of the World with Tom Hanks. Yeah, is that uh, good? Yeah, it is good. It's you know not. Uh, I think our our kids would probably find it boring, but my wife and I watched it, and it's set in 1890 and just well acted and a, a good story and. Interesting, keeps your attention. Yeah, I'm surprised that I don't hear uh, of more Christians using VidAngel, which was started by Mormons. And it, it, for a monthly fee, it essentially allows you to filter out whatever you want. I mean, very granular from graphic violence to just regular violence, from normal kissing to passionate kissing, from blasphemy to profanity. I mean, it goes... It, you can pick and choose what you want to see and what you want to hear. So uh, we've been watching Cobra Kai with our kids and we just vid angel the whole thing. Anything, you know, related to sexuality and profanity and blasphemy is gone and we keep all the violence in there. <laughs> um, but it's kind of a fun uh, bridging of the gap for uh, my wife and I who are in our mid forties and our kids who range from the kids watching it range from uh, preteen up to teenager. But uh, to go from kind of karate kid world of our youth in the 80s and uh, 90s to uh, today, it's it's kind of a fun thing to bring everybody together. And we did watch, my wife and I watched the Queen Gambit on VidAngel, and uh, it was really 
well shot and well acted. I did not love every part of it, but uh, I think other people were more excited about the storyline than I was. Yeah. Well, uh, we uh, we didn't go anywhere. We were originally going to go to Michigan and see my family and friends up there, but COVID canceled that Christmas. So we stayed here. We did, I uh, don't know if I should say this, but we did go to the Great Wolf Lodge for one night with our family, which is indoor water park hotel. And I can tell you that the COVID precautions were somewhat more lax inside the Great Wolf Lodge. Lots of a sea of humanity and tattoos gathered together on, but I don't think anyone got, or at least we didn't get sick from that. So that was a, a fun thing to do for the kids just locally here. And uh, I I've, I've flew to DC. I've hardly been on a plane since March. It's one of the only two or three times. And was there about half of the speakers for the cross conference were there. And that was good to just go up. I'd never been to McLean, David Platt's, the church where David Platt serves. And one of the things reminded me of, and maybe we'll talk about this, is how, how infrequently we're, we're seeing people. Now, we know that, but I think one of the reasons that largely goes unnoticed and untalked about for divisions in our day, and almost everyone recognizes there's lots of divisions in the church right now, one under the radar reason is people that might normally be seeing each other and having face-to-face -face conversations haven't seen each other for a year. I'm talking about different leaders and pastors and church folks who would be intermingling at various conferences or symposium events, and we just don't see each other. Now, uh, so I was really glad to see Max Stiles was there and Matt Schmucker and Zane Pratt and David Platt and uh, several other people couldn't come, but it was just good to, to see guys that I would have normally probably seen two or three times in the past year, but hadn't for some time. So uh, we watched, uh, none of you mentioned Mandalorian, maybe because that ended before Christmas. I didn't see the first season, but my kids did. And then we did watch the second season. And that was a fun thing to do on Friday night, 40 minute episodes. And uh, pretty much everyone in the family had something to enjoy in it. Although there's some, I think some cringy characters and things in there, but it, it, it got better. And I thought it, the last episode was good. Um, I'm, I watch football, so I'm sad. There's how many? There's only three more football games, and then we take a long break. So I'm grateful for that. And uh, well, my wife's excited about the Joanna Gaines resurfacing again with uh, a cooking show and Magnolia Network. My wife also found a show on HGTV called Escape to the Chateau. Any of you seen it? <laughs> so it's a British couple that bought a chateau in France. So it's a reno show, but they're renovating a chateau. And the amazing thing is they bought a 45-room chateau with seven other buildings and a moat in the countryside of France, and they bought it for $350,000. Wow. And so um, I've been just sort of watching it, it in the background, but my, my wife has enjoyed that. And I will say that this is 
you know, maybe our, our style here, we were, we still have cable. We're so antiquated. And uh, we saw in the Turner Classic Movies the other night, Charade. If you've never seen that movie. Never seen it? it. I don't even, I've never even heard of this. It is very good. It's a, am I right? It's a Hitchcock movie. And it has um, Cary Grant and uh, Audrey Hepburn. 63 or 64 very clever very lots of twists and turns it's kind of a a mystery who done it but it has lots of actors and actresses who went on to be famous walter matthau james coburn so i tried to have my kids watch it and they were so bored i said just stick with it it's really interesting so uh that that's sort of our style and then even um my mother-in-law could come and watch that with us. So uh, I'll have to give it Angel and try Ted Lasso after that. If I try to have our kids watch anything made like in 2010, they're like, Dad, this is so old. Well, I know. <laughs> and then after that came on The Man Who Knew Too Much, which is another Hitchcock movie with Doris Day and Jimmy Stewart. And that was made, I think, in 58. So I was born in 77. And I was thinking, this movie seems so old but it was only made 20 years before i was born 20 years before some of my kids were born is finding nemo <laughs> i mean that's how old we are so all right we'll we'll transition and talk about there's lots to talk about in our world i wanted to start and you guys have seen this i won't read the whole thing but maybe it'll be a good entree into a conversation about all that's going on, especially here in the United States. And this is a Facebook post from Abigail Dodds, who I think all of us know in one way or another, and a good writer and thinker and at uh, Bethlehem Baptist Church or one of the church sites in Minneapolis. And she had a post on both and, and she says, just reading some of it, it's possible to believe that widespread stealing, burning, violent, rioting all summer was damnable and that the violent storming of the Capitol was likewise damnable. It's possible to believe there were innocent protesters caught in both. It's possible to believe that COVID is real and especially dangerous for some and also that the panic the media incited is unhelpful at best and harmful to millions at worst. Uh, it's possible that ethnic partiality is sin to be repented of while also believing that the cultural narrative of pervasive mistreatment of anyone who isn't white uh, is, is a lie used for political social capital. It's possible to believe that the merging of Christian symbols with the storming of the Capitol and cult-like conspiracies is wicked while also believing that critical theory is a danger to the authority of Scripture and the purity of the church. Uh, she gives a few other examples so my question for us, and thank you, Abigail, for writing that. And I think all of us, uh, you know, more or less said, yeah, we, we agree with that both and. So why is that so hard to do? And, and not so much asking the particulars of each line or phrase that Abigail wrote, but why is that approach to these issues so difficult? And is that a, an approach we should be advocating more frequently? Justin? 
Yeah, I think one of the reasons that it's difficult for us to do is that we like to uh, posture. We like to play to the crowd. And I don't just mean other people like to do that. Well, I think I face that temptation myself. And so uh, it should not be hard to do. It should be easy to say, I want to declare truth where I find it. And I don't need to play to the crowd or to play sides off of each other. But I think that we are so politically oriented. And I don't just mean by that uh, kind of executive politics, but uh, we're political animals who want to um, appease one side or the other. And we also have different instincts. And so oftentimes we can uh, emphasize things differently, have different um, suspicions of one another, different senses of what what needs to really be emphasized for our particular crowd. But yeah, I think uh, all three of us, when we read Abigail's piece said, I agree with both of those sides. And why, why is that so difficult to say? What do you think, Colin? You guys are probably familiar with a lot of the studies on the effect of the market on churches. And one of the key sociological takeaways of the effect of a an open marketplace of religion is that churches tend to end up focusing on their distinctives as opposed to their commonalities. Uh, so a new church will come along and they're, they show how they're not like your grandmother's church, or they're different because they have congregational polity, or because they don't have congregational polity, or because they have high church worship or because they have low church worship or because they have dynamic preaching or because they have biblical preaching. You see what I'm saying? The marketplace encourages us to be able to emphasize what makes us different from others. And I think that has some carryover to how that plays out within broader debates within the church is that we'll, we'll tend to emphasize that which divides us, that which distinguishes us, that which sets us apart and I was, in fact, just thinking about this this morning, guys, um, about how journalism is, including the work that I do for the Gospel Coalition, has a kind of force that continually pulls you away from the both and, or continually pulls you away from the traditional or the, or the um, just that what's been that which has been said before. Because there's a constant pull to want to distinguish and to differentiate and to criticize and to, and social media is just that kind of journalism on steroids. But you guys have much more experience within the academic guild than I do. And the academic guild has a little bit of that temptation as well, because you have to be able to distinguish yourself from that which came before. So there isn't a lot of incentive to simply reiterate what's been said before. You have to always pitch it as something that is that is different. So I think sometimes the biggest effects on our lives are those which we don't even recognize. And for all of us living in an open marketplace of ideas, I think the both and is comes across as not saying anything. It's not adding anything to the discussion of not creating a, a level of urgency that leads to um, action, or at least that demands or compels action, because we're all so primed uh, for that kind of setup. So, but I think one reason why I'm hearing so much from so many pastors now is because I think they're trying to have the both-and mentality in an either-or world, 
and it's really pulling them and their churches at the seams. And so I appreciate Abigail um, just being able to show that it is possible to be able to hold competing, what are appearing to be competing ideas in our heads at the same time, and even to be able to discover a kind of nuance without at the same time falling prey, I know, Kevin, to one of your pet peeves, the constant synthesis, or even being above the fray. Those are two right. other approaches. One, one approach of above the fray of, why does anybody even care about any of this stuff? You guys don't have a clue. Or the you know, synthesis that always says, well, over here, you guys are wrong. Over here, you guys are wrong. But somewhere where I'm standing here in the middle is the right way to do it. And I'm not saying that's always wrong. Just saying that this, this both end is, is a little bit distinguished from that. And I think it's a little bit more characteristic to a pastor's typical position. Do you think that's accurate, Kevin? Or what, how do they often feel pulled of, I, I, I see what you're saying over here, but I see what you're saying over here. But why can't you guys see that both of you have some valid perspectives that can be held at the same time? You certainly do have to do that a lot as a pastor, not that other people don't. Uh but I, I am often finding myself, I'll listen to that, and I'll say, nope, that's, that, those are true points. And sometimes you don't get to a, a, a new breaking ground or wonderful statement of agreement, but simply by acknowledging, you know what, you, you made six points there, and three of them I think are right. Um, I'm still over here disagreeing because I have six other points that I think are right. But sometimes just to be willing to state, yep, that that's a good point. I can see that. Can at least help relationally, rhetorically. But of course, the question is, do we want to find that? Because it depends on what sort of issue. I'm, I'm reading through and listening to the wonderful biography by Andrew Roberts on Winston Churchill and you know, when Churchill is wanting Britain to rearm to fight the Nazis, you're not trying to find common ground. You're not trying to find a way to say, well, you know, you may really make some good points and we make some good points. So if every conflict that we have is at a fevered pitch of those, you know, reductio ad Hitlerum, everyone else is Hitler, then of course, then that is a misstep. And sometimes the stakes are that high. But that's not always the best way forward. I, I think, too, what we see is the the mega cultural teams are so increasingly well-defined, at least intuitively, and hermetically sealed from each other, that it is like, as I'm looking at Colin, you know, he's wearing the Kansas City Chiefs outfit and they beat the, the Browns the other day. So it is like two teams. And so when the capital insurrection happens, the, oh, I think almost all Americans can say that was, oh, that's a sad day. That shouldn't have happened. That's, that's horrible. But there's also this instinctive tribal thing that if you're on the left, you feel like their team just threw six interceptions on that day. I mean, look at what they did. This, you, you do feel some sense of this is, let's keep talking about this. This is good for our side. And if you're more conservative, you feel like, I can't believe this own goal that we just did. Th these, were, these were our people, even though when you think about it, you don't really want to own 
not all of those people, not the ones killing people and breaking in and, and chanting horrible things. But when the larger cultural issues are so divided, those two things, anytime something, I mean, it's just so predictable, whether it's uh, a mass shooting or it's riot or protest or something, all the sides get divided. And there, there is very little, at least in the short run, it feels like, to be gained by trying to acknowledge any other legitimate points on the other side. And, and uh, last thought here and see what else you guys want to add. But there is a there is a question of should we mainly be policing our own, so to speak, or ought we mainly to be warning against outside isms infiltrating into our camp or our church? Because both of those things are reality, but your instincts there. So if your instinct is, hey, you know what? Mainly conservative evangelical churches are not reading critical race theory, but they may be unhelpfully discipled in Christian nationalism. We're going to come to that. What is that? Is that a thing? Can we define it? But let's just say that's something bad. Um, so there's one instinct that says, you know what I really need to be talking about? Is that danger? That's what's in my churches. Uh, where someone else could also make the point and say, hey, you don't realize just the, the very world that we're living in, this is the air that we're breathing. Everybody is picking up this, whether it's critical theory or whatever it is. So, and and that may cause people to be silent in one or the other direction, just sensing, well, that's not really my fight to pick, or the people I know are not really into that, but the people I see on Facebook are falling prey to that other thing, and so I'm going to talk about that. And because it's a big world and a big country, and we can follow anybody on social media, any one of us can you know, somewhat legitimately make the case that our way of seeing what the major problems are, are really the major problems. Because you can point to evidence in any of those directions. I think all of that makes it very hard. And there just isn't the, you, you don't often get a lot of traffic, wins, whatever, by trying to say, you know what, they had a good point, they had a good point on some of these cultural flashpoints and doing this sort of both and that Abigail did. But on those issues in particular, I, I, I think we need to be leading the way as Christians to say, hey, we can, we can condemn two things at the same time. We can praise two things at the same time, even if they seem to be coming from opposite ends of the spectrum. Anything else you guys want to add? Yeah, I just track? add that the, the both and can be done in the way Abigail did there at the same time, it can also be done at different times. So for example, you in the middle of the riots this summer, you might have a certain message at that point, and then you might have another message when we see the Capitol Hill attack uh, six or whatever plus months later. That can be part of the both and as well. There can be a different emphasis depending on the different moment. And that's why I keep bringing it back, Kevin. 
to the pastor because the pastor has to be able to sense his congregation's mood and what word of the Lord that they need for that particular time. And sometimes there are words of consolation. Sometimes there are words of challenge, sometimes of, of admonition, sometimes of encouragement. That's part of the both and as well. So it's not just that we always go around and say, I mean, that, 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 that then becomes a little bit of the whataboutism if you just say, well, okay, yeah, I, I see what happened on Capitol Hill, but what about all the stuff that the left is doing over here? That's not the kind of both and that I would necessarily commend. Um, there can be a time and a season for different messages, but all within the same conceptual framework of conviction that is not content to be confined to whatever kind of either or binaries you're being given at that particular moment by whether it be politicians or media or circumstances or whatever. Justin, what do you think? Yeah, the whole whataboutism question is really interesting to think through because if nobody, it's an ism, so nobody likes being on the receiving end of it. Almost by definition, it's something bad. Uh, I was part of an ETS panel discussion with Jamar Tisby and John Fee over John Fee's book. John Fee's an American historian uh, writing about Donald Trump, and he coined the term the court evangelicals and and wrote a book about uh, how terrible it is that the evangelicals support Donald Trump. Um, and I was part of the response to that. And one of his key points in the book is that evangelicals who support Trump are are driven by fear. And then he quotes a few Bible verses that show that evangelicals should not fear. People of God should not uh, fear anything except God alone. I agree with those in theory, but I pointed out in my response that uh, it sure seems like people who are voting for Hillary Clinton, uh, this was before the election, so it's mainly focused on 2016 election, uh, you could produce lots of evidence that they were driven by fear. They were fearing the uh, Christian nationalism, the theonomic right. Uh, they were fearing uh, Trump presidency. So uh, is fear something that's common to all? And uh, you're just picking on one, or are you being inconsistent in applying that? And he, in his response, uh, suggested that I was engaged in whataboutism. But at its best, that can try to just pressure test whether somebody actually holds to a principle or not, or whether they're trying to score uh, cheap political points. Uh, remember another speaker, Scott Klusendorf, talking about the pro-life defense and the accusation that pro-lifers are inconsistent because they believe in defending the life of the unborn, but they don't uh, do enough to actually care for those who are born. And one of his responses was, you may be right. I may be terribly inconsistent. I don't think I am. Uh, I, I may be hypocritical uh, in how I treat issues X and Y, but that does not necessarily mean that I'm wrong about issue X. You still have to eventually at some point get around to discussing my argument about issue X. So the whole whataboutism thing is is interesting and frustrating at the same time. Uh, I, I do think that hypocrisy is a serious charge that uh, somebody is acting out of accordance with what they believe, but that's not the same thing as have you condemned by tweeting uh, every single thing that is uh, bad on the planet. That That's not the same as hypocrisy, uh, just the failure to say all those things. Yeah, I think that's a really important distinction. What about ism? And if people haven't heard of that phrase, it just means 
Well, what about that when you don't want to talk about what's going on at the moment? There's a distinction between uh, the charge of personal whataboutism and a more principial big picture. And so if, uh, you know, some Cruella de Vil is murdering puppies and you try to speak out against it and someone says, well, what about the Armenian genocide from 100 years ago? Okay, I'm I wasn't there, but that's bad. Well, you never talk about it. You didn't celebrate the end. I'm giving an absurd example, obviously, but there's a that that's one sort of hey, you're just avoiding talking about what's happening right now, or trying to make this seem less severe than it is. But then your point is is important, Justin. It, it is fair to ask people, well, where was this moral indignation? Here. Now, sometimes that's just a sidestep to not really talk about it. But on a personal level, it can be fair. And this is where all of us, and I'm talking about the, the three of us and other people who may write and comment. That's not We're not mainly cultural commentators, but all of us do some of that. And we do some of that on this podcast. And when you go down that path, you set yourself up. So the more that's sort of your thing is that's what you do. And more and more because of social media, it can become anybody's thing. You do set yourself up to say, now, where was this righteous indignation six months ago or six years ago? And even when we think that we're being fair, we can look at our tone. And I know people hate that, the tone police, but this is what I mean. We may have spoken against one thing and we did it in a very scholarly, dispassionate way, and then we speak about something else, and it's full-on prophetic kind of shame on you, or we speak against one thing, but it's very uh, seeking to persuade, and hey, I really hear where you're coming from, and I agree with all of these things, but just hear me out, versus seeming to be talking down to someone. So all of that is, I think, part of what comes out in the whataboutism charge that can be legitimate on a personal institutional level, um, even if it's sometimes used as a distraction from really talking about and really condemning what needs to be condemned. Did you have something, Colin? Yeah, I had a couple people ask me this week why the Gospel Coalition doesn't do more exposés, don't do more um, investigative journalism, things like that. And I think it was probably in light of some of what World Magazine and Christianity Today have done, for example, with Ravi Zacharias. And I'm grateful for what World Magazine and Christianity Today have done of being able to understand those things, because I think people deserve to know, especially as their donors to these ministries, about how their funds are used and how these organizations are governed and things like that. So I think those are legitimate forms of, of inquiry. But I responded and said, I don't think organizationally I ever could have done that without being selective. Mm -hmm. In other words, say something came up with somebody the Gospel Coalition didn't like. Okay, an expose. What if it came up with one of our own people? I'm not saying that some like somebody would have been, oh, no, no, no. We. My point is it's too tempting. We would have walked straight into a situation where it was, well, wait a minute, I'm not sure we want to do that. Uh, that person might be upset or those people could be on and on and on. And I just knew at that point we couldn't get into that situation because it would be clearly inconsistent. 
And that's what, and I'm so I'm grateful for what World and Christianity Today have also done sometimes in writing about some of my friends, some of our friends, some of the people that we've worked with before, some of the people that that we've you know had had you know difficult uh, uh, breaking of, of fellowship with. Um, but I just had to learn that was not going to be my particular calling because of where I am. And I have to be mindful of those temptations. So that's, I think, to your point, Kevin, of you're going to be the cultural commentator, you're going to speak the biblical truth about every single thing that's happening. It is extremely tempting to only do that against certain lists of people who are not those people who pay your bills. Hmm. You're going to be extremely tempted to only say bad things about them and only good things about your the people who support you. Um, the more you talk, the more you you, you sort of put up with put that you know put out that placard of what that of what you're doing professionally. You walk yourself into that situation. And now to Justin's point earlier, because of social media, we're kind of all in that situation, and it induces quite a bit of stress and conflict and anxiety. And I don't think it's particularly healthy. Right. Let's use that to segue to this ism. And I'm going to set the clock at about 10 minutes here so <laughs> we can uh, finish by talking about some books. But Christian nationalism. Uh, we know we have someone, a friend of ours, or at least acquaintance of ours, who's, who's writing a, a, a big book on Christian nationalism. As of yet, I, I couldn't point to somebody today, some a, a manifesto on it, or here's the book that argues for it. So on the one hand, it seems to me still pretty ambiguous and nebulous, but that doesn't mean ideas aren't sometimes in that stage. What I want us to talk about, because it's after the, the, the Capitol riots, we're hearing a lot about it. Let's go around this triangle a couple of times. And let's start, okay, if Christian nationalism means this, and let's start with, if it means this, it's not a bad thing. I think people are using it as a bad thing. I think the three of us would say, yeah, it sounds like a bad thing, but just those words together in many people's minds wouldn't have to be. So Justin, give us an example of if someone out there thinks of Christian nationalism as X, then that's not what we're concerned about. Yeah, maybe this is too simplistic, but if somebody gets tears in their eyes when they hear the national anthem, they love America, which is where we're recording this in the United States. They have a, a love of country and they appreciate the, the sacrifice that is made. They think that their country is uh, flawed, but still a force for good on the whole uh, worldwide. Um, so they they love their nation and they want to see it prosper. They don't want to see it uh, divide or turn it on itself. And they also want to see people come to the Lord. Uh, they want to see uh, their fellow citizens become Christians and uh, bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. So kind of combine that uh, love of country and a desire to see the citizens of the country love Jesus. Um, if, if that's what Christian nationalism is, uh, pretty hard to find objections to that. That's good. Colin, what, give us an example of something that wouldn't be problematic. 
Would not be problematic to be able to identify the elements of Christianity, um, specifically within the Reformation, specifically within um, continuing on through the Enlightenment period of how the very essence of what became the United States of America was owing a great deal to Christianity. Um, we don't have to say that that was the primary or even the, or certainly the exclusive force, or even that all of the founders were explicitly Christian or doing this because of they, they were Christians, but simply to be able to observe the particular elements of Christianity that made the United States of America possible. For example, Kevin, shout out to you, some of that Presbyterian influence on, you know, national, um, you know, Presbyterian polities influence on some of the checks and balances and things like that, or even just broader changes that the Reformation had wrought that made things like liberty of conscience more realizable um, within that context. And specifically, through the um, you know through the the pilgrimage of some people who were motivated um, by religious reasons. Now, wouldn't want to attribute that to religious freedom because they didn't necessarily allow religious freedom. But my point is simply, if we recognize some of the particular elements of Christianity and how they shaped the United States, that Christian nationalism, I think, is fine. Yeah, and putting those two together, then we could say if Christian nationalism means trying to bring to bear Christian values and principles and be salt and light in our world, um, recognizing that there's a creator, recognizing whether from the Bible or from natural law, there is a higher authority and law to which human flourishing is made possible when we follow that law, uh, to even have some sense of remembrance of ways in which the country was more discernibly Christian. Now, minority brothers and sisters would say the good old days weren't that good. So we we, we know there, there were no golden days. But to have a sense that there used to be more of a uh, acceptable public face for Christianity in this country, and we lament that loss all of that um, can be appropriate, defensible, good. So Christian nationalism, just by putting those two words together, doesn't have to be nefarious. But let's turn the corner now. What what are some things that we want to say, well, if that's what Christian nationalism is, then that's a big problem, and we're going to need to disciple people out of it or warn against it. Do you have something at the top of your mind, Justin? Yeah, I think the identity issue is a large one, that it, it's okay to identify as an American and uh, to feel some measure of, of pride in that. But when it it becomes functionally such a deep part of your identity that it obscures our identity in Christ, I think that that becomes problematic. Uh, Tommy Kidd on our Evangelical History blog uh, wrote a post, and he he made the point um, in critiquing Christian nationalism about the level of affinity that one feels with fellow believers who might not be Americans versus somebody who's an American who is not a believer. Brad Littlejohn uh, wrote a response and critiqued him to some degree, but I think there's something to what Tommy's saying, that th there's a naturalness if you're in a foreign country and you're the only American and you spot another American, you, you share uh, some 
cultural commonalities and uh, you both speak English and uh, you, you, you have some shared history. And so there's some affinity, even if you don't know each other, but the way in which uh, an unbeliever, uh, you feel that with an unbeliever is different than two believers meeting up for the first time. There's a, there's a deeper, more embedded, more, uh, more fundamental to our identity aspect to that relationship that I think should trump any commitment to uh, nationhood. So uh, identity would be one area I think that that we want to be really careful about. If that, if if we feel more American than we do Christian, if uh, being in America counts more than being in Christ, then I think uh, there's warning signs on the dashboard at the very least that something has gone seriously wrong. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that, Colin. What would you say? I'm going to stick with the founding and say that there is a way that that element of Christian influence on the founding can go very badly. And that would be where we identify the covenant of God with his people in the Old Testament with a covenant that God makes with the the people of colonial or now the United States of America. Um, I, I think Eric Metaxas is a plenty visible public figure that as I relate a conversation with him, I, I think it's appropriate and in keeping, and I've shared the story with you guys before, but it may, it'll probably be new to a number of listeners. I had a conversation in 2015 with Eric, and my understanding with him was very different from what it would be in 2021. And at one point in the conversation, he said that at a, at a restaurant that he'd picked out in New York City, he said, uh, America is the last hope of Christianity. And I just assumed he had misspoken. I thought he meant to say that Christianity was last hope of America. And he said, no, I meant what I said. And in fact, he would go on to write a book about nationalism and Christianity that I think would exemplify the problematic elements that we're talking about here and that we've seen a flourish in the last number of years and sort of reach a kind of um, heightened point and disturbing point uh, with the you know with the late Trump presidency into the transition or lack thereof into the attacks on the Capitol building. So if if you begin to see the United States in covenantal terms, in divine terms, then as Eric Metaxas said within the with, at the Jericho March, at that point, reality doesn't matter because revelation trumps. So let me add add to that, and uh, I think you guys would agree with these, and that's helpful, Colin. I'm, I'm just jotting down a few words. So more theological, if Christian nationalism is a less sophisticated form of theonomy, I would find that problematic. Theonomy uh, arguing that the Old Testament laws are giving us a, a blueprint for what a modern nation state should do, that it's God's law, and therefore that should be enshrined. Uh, I, I think when I hear voices on the left, and they've been saying this for 30 years or more, fearing a great theon theonomic takeover, I do want to say there aren't that many of them are around. You could have every Reformed Presbyterian takeover, and it's not very many of them comparatively. So I think the threats of that are overblown. But if 
that's the the vision. Uh, I have problems with that theologically. Uh, more sociologically, and this is getting to what you said about identity, I do fear that Christian nationalism, if that embraces a grievance culture, victimization, that's that this is about our identity as the aggrieved party. And, and many of those people would be critical about minorities for doing that and, and vice versa. So there's a race sometimes, I mean, like a foot race, to find the highest aggrieved status. And to the degree that Christian nationalism is a form of expressing we're the ones who are put upon, we're the ones who are persecuted. Uh, I, I don't think that's helpful, even if it were uh, demonstrably too, true. And it's not demonstrably true. We've talked about before, one of the things that you get living in in a country that's almost 50-50 politically, or maybe 40-40-20, as some people say, or 45-45-10, is that you have vast swaths of people who are convinced that they are one step away from mortal extinction and that those opposite them pose an existential threat. So everyone can feel like they're losing at the same time. And I think uh, movements on the right or the left that are motivated by those sort of identity politics and grievance, uh, now I'm not talking about legitimate, yes, we protest against injustice or suffering, but to make that your identity, I think is going to be problematic. And then uh, I'll just bang the drum on this one more time. And that's an appropriate, here's what I think we need. We need an appropriate uh, appraisal and use of the spirituality of the church. Now that is verboten in some circles because it was used uh, in the 19th century by some to defend slavery, to say, hey, the church is a spiritual institution. We don't need to take a stance on slavery. But Charles Hodge and others said, no, the Bible does speak directly to some issues, but it doesn't speak directly to others. And so when when I see that the political sphere and the ecclesiastical sphere seem to be having almost completely overlapping circles, and one is using the symbolism of the other and vice versa, then that's very problematic. I mean, th there's almost nothing in the Gospels more frequently misunderstood than the nature of Christ's kingdom, that it is an, not an earthly political kingdom. It may have earthly and political ramifications to say Jesus is Lord, but it is a heavenly kingdom. It's one that's coming and one that has already come. And constantly they're wanting to make Jesus king by force. The violent try to take the kingdom by force. And Jesus says, no, that, that's not the sort of kingdom that we're about here. So I do think at root there are often theological issues. And I would encourage any pastors or other Christian leaders out there to try to get at some of these issues theologically uh, rather than just politically, sociologically. So when I hear much consternation about Christian nationalism, and this will wrap up this conversation on this point, uh, I just want to both encourage and caution people. I guess the caution is, let's make sure we know what we're talking about and provide some definition. And then the encouragement is, yeah, th there, there are real dangers out there um, for those of us who, for lack of a better term, are conservative folks. 
to to sense and we need to be honest that it's not always just the bad guys out there but sometimes we have real things in our camp and we need to try to be thoughtful about them so i i hope that there 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 is more that is written on this um that has a good historical philosophical theological lens either to agree or disagree with because that's one of the real benefits of having things in writing is it's much easier to do analysis and say what you agree and disagree with, where at present it feels like Christian nationalism is either a very genuine threat that we ought to be concerned about, or it's a slur to just put over anybody who voted a different way or doesn't think exactly as we do. All right. Let's end on a cheery note and talk about some books. What books have you been reading in the past week, week, month, two months, over since last time we met? Give some books. And uh, if you have a book, whether you've been reading it or not, but if you have a book either on race, especially MLK, so we're, we're recording this on the MLK holiday and or abortion. Because, of course, those two things usually fall in the same week, Sanctity of Life and the Roe v. Wade anniversary. So uh, some books you've been reading in the last month or so. And in addition to that, you have any great recommendations on those two perennial topics? Justin? Yeah, so on maybe to start with the second one first on abortion. Uh, if any listeners are out there, uh, Scott Klusendorf, mm-hmm. last name starts with a K, Klusendorf. I won't try to spell the whole thing, but uh, his book that Crossway publishes on making a case uh, for life, I think, is the best introduction. Like if you don't know where to begin, you've never really studied it, you want some tactics to use, want to clarify what you think in your own mind, I think that's the best entry-level book. And then Francis Beckwith's uh, Defending Life is a sophisticated sort of a college to graduate level study on abortion that I think is just, it's the sort of writing that just will make you a better thinker, make you more logical, make you more clear, make you more informed. Uh, on race, uh, George Yancey's book, I think, is is a uh, even-handed and thoughtful. He's an African-American evangelical sociologist. Beyond and, racial gridlock. Yeah, beyond racial gridlock. Uh, looking forward to Isaac Adams' book that will be coming out in 2021, which I haven't read, though I've seen a, a preview of uh, a Shai Lin. Shai Lin's as well. Shai Lin's. Yeah, I didn't know about Shai Lin. wrote a book for Moody Press, uh, but that looks like it's coming out uh, within the next month or so. But I would encourage people to read, again, uh, King's Letter from Birmingham Jail, written in 1963, uh, draws heavily upon the Christian tradition and natural law, and I think it's just such a beautiful and important uh, document, uh, not only historically, but it, it continues to speak to us today. In terms of what I'm reading, uh, my parents for Christmas gave me a thousand-page biography of Abraham Lincoln called Abe. Uh, by David Reynolds. Um, 
and uh, the subtitle is Abraham Lincoln in his times. And he points out that there have been 16,000 biographies and studies of wow. Lincoln that have been written. Uh, so more books on can exist than any other figure in history other than Jesus. Uh, and his is the first of the 16,000 that's a cultural biography. So uh, he's into cultural biography. He's written ones of Walt Whitman and, and others. John Brown, I believe, but he, he's seeking to put Lincoln in his time. So I'm um, 300 pages into that and plowing through that slowly and uh, learning a lot and, and enjoying it. Uh, in terms of Christian books, um, Gerald Bray's The Attributes of God. Uh, just trying to trying to make my way through books like that just very slowly. Um, just read an attribute a day. And uh, Eckhard Schnabel's book, 40 Questions About the End Times, has been on my shelf for many years. And Eschatology, I think I've read one book all the way through uh, The Bible in the Future by Anthony Hokema on eschatology. And it's just one that I end up avoiding. You know, what is uh, what is the thunder and the earthquake and the, the seals and the bowls and all those things represent? And um, it's that's a, a topic that's just easy for me to put off. So uh, I really like the 40 question series that Crago puts, puts out because you can read just one section at a time, a few pages and uh, learn something and uh, just make my way through it slowly. So there's big books where I'm trying to plow through a larger book. And then there's books where I'm just taking a page or two at a time uh, when I've got a break or, uh, you know, sitting in traffic, that those sort of things. All right. I'll mention some books. I'll start with uh, a book that I, I doubt very many people have heard of, but I read it several years ago and, and found it helpful by Ismail Hernandez. It's called Not Tragically Colored, Freedom, Personhood, and the Renewal of Black America. And it was published, I think, by Acton out of Grand Rapids. So that you, it has more of a conservative bent, but uh, I found it to be a, a helpful, different look at some of the questions that continue to bedevil us here on race. And uh, I, I'd also mention the... I, just assumed one of you would the Taylor branch volumes on MLK and, and you can get the, the one slim single volume, a couple hundred pages on the King years. And that would be just good history to read on abortion. One I, I've written on my, this on my blog years ago, but I think it's helpful to just think about, I was going to mention Klusendorf, but if you want to just know more about the Roe decision, Clark Forsyth's book, abuse of discretion explores many of the myths surrounding the Roe decision. So that's a helpful book. And what I'm reading, I have uh, four books that I've finished in 2021 so far and very different kind of books. Uh, Russell Kirk's Concise Guide to Conservatism. I may write about this on my blog. So if you want just a uh, hundred pages on a thinker from uh, the 20th century on conservatism, that's good. Uh, the Myth of the Lost Cause by Edward Bone Kemper III. So if you want to know, I, some it is the name. Why the, sought, the South Fought the Civil War and Why the North Won. So this is definitely against the Lost Cause. I've, I've read some books from the Lost Cause side of things. But if you want just a, a clear, it's very laid out in, you know, several chapters uh, was slavery about to die out? Was slavery the primary cause of secession? Was Robert E. Lee one of the greatest generals in history? I'm not saying that you will agree with everything in here, and 
I would have to read more history to see if I agreed with everything, but uh, very clearly laid out in an interesting book. I also read the biography of Gerhardus Voss by Danny Olinger. Sorry, Danny, if I mispronounce your last name. I always love to read biographies of some of our reformed or Presbyterian. Yeah, he's a big listener of LBE. Is he? Podcast. No, I, no, I probably not. Well, I, just, I don't know. He's, he's, a, he's an OPC probably. pastor. He might be. I haven't <laughs> hey, met him. But, he is, uh, give us a, give us a if shout. If he is, okay. give us a shout out. Okay, Gearhardus Voss. So that was enjoyable. And then th- these are sort of my my fun reading. Uh, well, all of them are fun, but I am I've read through so many kind of productivity books, and I got this one, Colin, from one of the TGC end of year lists. I forgot who mentioned it, but Make Time: How to Focus on What Matters Every Day. Jake Knapp and John Zaratsky. It's a very quick, easy read. It has little pictures, um, simple book, and you're not going to put into, into your daily rhythm all the you know, 60, 70 suggestions here. But if you read a book like that and you get three or four that stick with you, yeah, I think it's, it's worth reading. So that's what I've been doing. And I'm on to some other bigger history books now. Colin? Well, my reading has changed in 2021 and it'll be changed for the foreseeable future. I have some, you're, you're going through Turretin. <laughs> that would be a change. Yeah. That would be a dramatic change. Um, I, see if I can drop hints throughout the year. Um, I I've embarked on the most ambitious sort of writing project of my career to this point. And so a lot of my reading is, is concentrated on that. Um, and I mean, I do have a bunch of other books going, but they're, you know, I'm there, I'm, there's going to be slow. So I'll, I'll save those for a future episode. So I have something to talk about. So my first two weeks, um, so far, Heralds of the King, Christ-Centered Sermons in the Tradition of Edmund P. Clowney, edited by Dennis Johnson. Uh, also, I've been working my way through For Christ in the University, the Story of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship of the USA, 1940-1990, Keith and Gladys Hunt. Let that not uh, be the only uh, book on InterVarsity that I'm reading. See Stacey Woods and the Evangelical Rediscovery of the University by A. Donald McLeod. Um, and then also... I've been working my way through, uh, actually wrap this up, Moral Believing Animals, Human Personhood and Culture um, by Christian Smith. So if you can use those puzzle pieces, you can begin to uh, guess as to what I'm I'm working on. I do, though, also with, uh, because of my Gospel Bound podcast, I do have an opportunity to be talking with a bunch of different authors. And so a couple that I'm, that I'm interested in and that I wrapped up 2020 reading, uh, Thaddeus Williams' book, Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth, 12 Questions Christians Should Ask About Social Justice. I'm talking to him soon. And then this um, is a, a little bit off the beaten path, but um, Minds Wide Shut, How the New Fundamentalisms Divide Us by Gary Saul Morrison and Morty Shapiro, an old college professor and um, uh, university president, my alma mater. I'm pretty sure they would consider us all to be the fundamentalists that they write against in the book. Um, which is part of why I want to interview them. And yet, nevertheless, I I was pretty astounded by how much they attacked the left. Hmm. And I thought, that's not easy these days for a university president to really attack the left for its increasing fundamentalism and to use that terminology to refer to 
socialists and communists and all kind of leftist activists and and a robust defense of the free market and I just didn't think uh, didn't think President uh, Shapiro had it in him uh, to do that. So uh, I'm hoping I'll get to talk to them for Gospel Bound. We'll see. That's great. Uh, I also read uh, the new biography of R.C. Sproul by our friend Steve Nichols, which Crossway is publishing coming out in the next couple of months. And Steve's going to be a guest on the podcast. I'm really looking forward to that. That was that was really fun to read. Justin, Colin, good to see your glistening faces here. Good to be with you all and grateful for our listeners. And uh, if you have questions, topics, things you are interested in us talking about, uh, certainly feel free to send an email or communicate through one of the channels. We do take a look at that and try to, we, we, we want to give what the, the people want within reason. But good to be with you, and thanks for listening. So until next time, glorify God, enjoy Him forever, and read a good book.